Revolution Church, how are we? You doing good? Man, it is good to see all of you and good to be back. If you're new today, uh, I was been out for the last four weeks taking a much-needed preaching break, which I do every year. This is a time to get away, to you know, get out of the rhythm of having to preach every week, to spend time with the Lord for myself and spend time with family, work on things in the church instead of being in it all the time. So it's good to be back. I'm excited. Uh, might be a little rusty, though, you know, getting back into the rhythm of this. Literally, last gathering, I walked out here without my microphone on. That is not a joke. All right, I was standing backstage praying, preparing, like, all right, Lord, this is going to be great. Scripture's on the screen, and I'm like, oh, I don't have a microphone. So I take off running backstage. All the production people were like, oh, the Scripture's there. Where's Jason? Um, I don't know if that's how they were saying it, but I'm sure, you know, there was some tenseness. Um, so literally walked out here, like putting my microphone in. And so this gathering, I feel like we're much better prepared. All right, much better, much more relaxed. All right, so I'm excited to get into the Word of God today. Before I do, though, let me honor those who taught over the last four weeks. Let's give it up for everybody who taught. Didn't they do a great job? Man, yeah. We really, we really do have some gifted people, uh, team members and staff, and so I'm so grateful for them. I told them before I left that my only thing that I was wrestling with is I really wanted to teach those texts uh, because John chapter 5 was awesome, but I was really, really excited for them to teach it, to hear, hear their perspectives on it, and I thought they did a fantastic job. So make sure you tell them that if you haven't already told them that. Buy them a gift card somewhere. Tell them thank you. Uh, it's never enough uh, appreciation that we can show to people for their giftedness and for their service. So thank you guys for teaching over the last several weeks. But I'm really, really excited to teach today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. We're starting chapter 6. And this discourse in this chapter, we're going to be in it for a little bit um, over the next couple weeks because it's an important kind of inflection point in the story of the Gospel of John. I'll explain more about that in a little bit. But the story in John chapter 6 is the only miracle that occurs uh, that is written about in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's a rather famous story, one that you might have, I'm sure if you've been around church, have heard before, but I'm excited to dig into that. But as always, let's pray before we get started, and then we'll get into the text. All right, pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as the church, even in multiple locations, God, to hear your word preached, to worship together, to sing, to be with your people. And God, I pray now as we open up your word that you would help me, as always, to preach it in a way that is honoring to you, that is honest to what the text is trying to say, but also is helpful to all of us. And God, we know that that cannot happen without the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask you now to fill us with your spirit so that we can hear and we can see what you have for us today. God, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 6, like I said, is where we're going to be. Before I jump into John chapter 6, so you can kind of hold that, I want to reference back the main purpose statement verses of the gospel of John, which we hit in week one of this series. Maybe you remember it, maybe you don't, maybe you weren't even here then. But I want to kind of refer back to this. We'll do this several times as we continue to go throughout this gospel, because it's important for us to understand the purpose as to why John is writing this. And John tells us the purpose in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So they're here on the screen. I'm going to read them for you, and that'll set up our text in John chapter 6. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he did a lot more than what John wrote. 
Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the controlling verse, if you will, for the entire gospel. If you want to understand the entire 21 chapters of John, John tells you, here's the purpose statement. Here's why I wrote what I did. He didn't write everything that Jesus did, but he wrote enough of what Jesus did so that we would know who Jesus is. He is the Christ. And in believing in him, we would have life in his name. So again, that's kind of the controlling part of the entire story. Now, the reason why I bring that up, one, just it's good to remind ourselves of this, but two, in John chapter six, you're going to see an amazing sign. You're going to see an amazing miracle happen. Again, one that is recorded in all four gospels. But we have to remember the main point of why John wrote that sign. The main point of why John wrote that sign about what Jesus did was so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, all right? So that's the main point. And so I'm saying that because that's kind of the controlling narrative for every sermon that we're gonna do in John is this is for you to believe. Now, within the stories, and I'll show you this too today, there are subpoints. And what I mean by that is that Jesus and the, the Bible is always kind of operating on multiple levels. It's, it's ultimately operating on kind of one big meta narrative, one big storyline about who Jesus is. That's ultimately the point of the entire Bible, who Jesus is. But then within that, there is other subpoints that God is also trying to drive home about not only who he is, but how he works, what his ways are, what his will is. So who he is, what his will is, what his ways are. And so I'm going to point out kind of those subpoints as well. So little did you know, you're going to get three for one today. All right, so blue light special. Anybody other Kmart shoppers out there? All right, I had the privilege and honor of being fired by Kmart. And so that's a true story for playing on a wheelchair. All right, and so I know all about blue lights. That's another true story. All right, but that's another story for another day. That's a sub point we don't even need to get into. All right, so main point about who Jesus is, then some sub points within it. All right, so let's go. John chapter six, starting in verse one. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So since this story is written about in all four gospels, we can kind of take bits and pieces of it from the different gospels to kind of put together everything that is going on. But what John is telling us, he's on this side, he goes to this side. Now, again, if you've been here over the last several weeks or even the last several months, we've been talking about how Jesus has been showing who he is and how he did his, in John, he did his first miracle in Cana, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he goes down to Jerusalem for the first Passover, which that's what we talked about on Easter, if you were here, flipping tables, all that type of stuff. It was a lot of fun, all right? Now, Jesus is working his way back up on the west side of the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, back where his home was, and he's going back up there to minister. And several months ago, we talked about how he had to go through Samaria and how he ministered to the woman at the well there. And we talked about through that. Now, he got back in John chapter four 
to the west side, and the people that were there welcomed him back into their town because they thought, oh, this is the guy that turned water into wine. So they welcomed him, and and this is the type of guy we would all welcome, right? The dude that can do party tricks. Everybody likes that guy? Water into wine. And I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm being for real. That's what the text tells us. They were like, oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that sucker turned water into wine. This cat is cool. What else can he do? So they welcome him into their area. The reason why I'm pointing that out is because that's on the, if you're looking at the map, that's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So there's a lot of buzz going on around about Jesus. And he gets into a boat with his disciples. He's like, listen, we got to go to the other side. He had to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then John tells us it's also called the Sea of Tiberias, which all that tells you is John wrote later than the other apostles, because by this time, there was a town called Tiberias that they had put built in honor of the Roman emperor. And so this Sea of Galilee was being renamed to the Sea of Tiberias. And so it just tells you John's writing later. So they're going over to the other side, and, and that side of the Sea of Galilee is more desolate. It's more hilly. It's more grassy. If you pay attention to current events today, that is the area that is now referred to as the Golan Heights. It's a very strategic area between Israel and what is now modern-day Syria. And and that area, the reason why it is so strategic, because it was a very spiritually active, I guess I should say, area. And what I mean by that is that area um, was the same place that Jesus cast out the demons from the two demoniac guys. And remember, he threw the demons into the pigs, and then the pigs jump off the cliff. That was on that side of the lake. And on that side of the Sea of Galilee, also just north of there, Caesarea Philippi, a lot of temple worship, a lot of demonic stuff going on. That is exactly where the place is. I've told you this before, that they believe the gates of hell were, like the way into the underworld was right there. So on that side of the Sea of Galilee, a lot of crazy stuff was happening. But it was very remote. It was very desolate. Interestingly enough, that's where Jesus went a lot to pray, to get away from people. So the gospel of Mark tells us that they get in the boat, go to the other side. Well, the people see that Jesus get in the boat and they take off running around the top part of the sea. Literally, like you can read this in Mark six. They take off running to where they get to the other side before Jesus does in the boat. That's some fast running. All right. And I would illustrate that if I wouldn't get out of breath and not be able to preach, you know, for the next little bit. So literally they're in the boat. Just imagine they're in the boat. They're taking off running. She's like, I can't get away from these crazy people. And then it says, John tells us because they saw the signs. Remember, this is the group of people that were like, we like party trick Jesus. All right. We like all the signs he's doing. So they're like, what else is he going to do? So they take off running crowds of them. The Bible's going to tell us in just a second, 5,000 families. So about 20,000 people conservatively taken off running to go get with Jesus. And Jesus is trying to just get away and have some Sabbath, have some rest time. But Mark also tells us when he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so when they land, he starts teaching them. And the reason why he's teaching them is because they have developed a theology that I have now just starting to affectionately call Ace of base Christians. If you're like, I don't know what the heck that is, Jason. Well, in the 90s, 
There was a pop band called Ace of Bass from Sweden, and they had a rather famous song called I Saw the Sign. I saw the sign, opened up my eyes, I saw the sign. You know you missed me for four weeks, all right? I know you missed my singing. So here they are, Ace of Bass Christians, I saw the sign. Where's Jesus, what sign you got for me today, right? And the reason I point that out, and and now that song will be stuck in your head because it's been stuck in my head since Thursday, all right? I I, I did not like that band at all. All that she wants is another baby. Oh, I hate those songs, right? Like I just mm, just couldn't do it. I'm sorry for doing that to you today. But when I read this, that's what I thought of. I don't know if this happens to you when you read the Bible, but it should, all right? Because now that it'll stick, it's like the water boy a few months ago, all right? That high quality H2O, all right? But they saw the sign, opened up their eyes, right? And now they are running to Jesus. So I'm saying that to you so that you can kind of put yourself in the story. Here's Jesus with his disciples trying to get away. This huge crowd is coming in a desolate place. They're just trying to get away, get some rest. And yet Jesus has compassion on them. So that's the scenario, all right? A lot of chaos going on. I mean, literally, crowds of people running, and they beat him to the other side of the shore. No easy feat to do. And it's in that context that this story happens. So look at verse four. Now, the Passover. So this is now the second Passover that John references. The first one was at the temple. We talked about that. This is the second one. So this is now a year into Jesus's ministry. The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So that's what's going on. He's all these people. He's teaching them. Where are we going to buy bread? And what's interesting is this is when the Passover is, and John tells us that on purpose, because John 6 is an entire discourse about how Jesus is the real bread of life. We'll get into that in a few weeks. So this is not ironic that it's happening at the same time. And Jesus is the one who introduces the conversation to Philip and says, where are we going to feed these people? Now, it's interesting to me. That in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of 20,000 people coming to see Jesus, do some signs, he has enough time to stop and turn and have a conversation with Philip and ask Philip a question. Now, just point of reference, anytime Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. I point that out often because God will ask you questions at times. In fact, here's why we know that. Look at verse six. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he would do, but he asked the question to test Philip. Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One denarii would be a day's wages. So 200 would be eight months of wages. So eight months of salary He's saying, that wouldn't be enough to buy bread. So right there, we learn a little bit about what Jesus is doing. And therefore, this is kind of the sub point within the point that I was telling you about. It can help us understand how Jesus works with us. 
Because why did he ask him the question? Not because he didn't know what he was going to do. And not because he didn't even know how Philip would respond. He knew how Philip would respond. But here's the deal. Philip didn't know. So when Jesus asks us questions, it's not for his benefit. It's for ours. It's because he's trying to test us. Now, this word test, in the Greek, it's interesting. Normally, and I've told you this before, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word can mean all kinds of different things, but Greek words are a lot more specific. But this is one Greek word that's a little unique in that it can mean almost kind of, it's one idea, but, but going two different directions or producing two different results. One is to test something to see the quality of it. This would be the idea if you have a swimming pool. It's like testing what's in your swimming pool. Right, to get the pH level, to you know, chlorine, what do you got to do to shock it? You're just kind of testing to see what's there. The other one is, a, it's a testing, and this is where the Bible writers will actually use a different word, even though in Greek it's the same one. It's more like tempting. And tempting means to try to cause someone to sin, to cause someone to make a mistake. So it's the same word, it's the same thing that's happening, but one is to test the quality of something, and one is to entice someone to do something wrong. Now, automatically, you should know which one Jesus is doing, because James chapter 1 tells us that God tempts no one. He cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one. That's what James 1.13 says, but for the few verses before that, James 1, 2 through 12 tells us that God does test us. Now, that's a set of scriptures that nobody likes and that other Christians have quoted to you. And you're like, I want to punch you because you're quoting that to me. Have joy in all trials. Right? That's what, that's what James 1, 2 says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That word testing, same word. That's the scripture that nobody likes. Right? We don't want that one. Which brings up an idea that I want you to think about. What does it make you feel like that God is going to test you? Think about it. Here's Jesus in the midst of all these crowds. He knows what he's going to do. He, he's not freaking out over the crowds, but in the midst of that, he has the compassion, not only on the crowd, but on Philip to stop and engage with him to test the quality of Philip's faith, to test it, to see what's there. Not because Jesus doesn't know what's there, but because Philip doesn't know what's there. And this is where I want you to think about it. Again, it's, it's important for us when we read the text to try to enter into the, 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 not only the current situation in context, but what would it have felt like in that moment? So I want you to think about it like this. When Jesus turns and asks Philip the question, do you think he's asking Philip the question very anxiously? Like, Philip, what are we going to do? Look at all these people, Philip. Where are we going to get them bread? Do you think that's how Jesus is acting? Quick answer, no. Now, we know that because the verse tells us, but Philip didn't know that. Philip didn't know that Jesus knew what he was going to do. 
And again, this is where, and I'm not trying to be like sacrilegious to Jesus. I don't think he's anxious at all. This is just my opinion. You can think for yourself what you think. But it, I feel like in this moment, Jesus is like Rico Suave. He's cool, calm, collected. He ain't freaking out. He's like, hey, Phil, where do you think we're going to get some bread? Again, it's my opinion, all right? Now, why is he asking that? The text tells us to test him. This is where I was saying, how does it make you feel that in the midst of chaos around you, Jesus has the wherewithal to test you? Think about it. Now, in a little bit, the Bible is going to tell us that God is going to utilize the disciples, I'll make this point when I get there, to actually, in the process of the miracle of multiplication, he is going to use them in the process. He is going to invite them along into the journey of actually being a part of the miracle taking place. Now, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus need their help? No. So why is he doing this? For all you fathers out there, the same reason why you involve your kids into doing things. You sure don't involve them because you need them. In fact, a lot of times, it's actually more of a liability to have them with you doing what you're doing, right? I thought about this when, before we moved here in 2009, I was changing the brakes on my truck. So I'm in the garage, lift up the truck, got the tires off, changing the brakes, and I bring my son Jackson, who's five years old at the time. And we're like, come on, Jackson, we'll show you how to change the brakes. I mean, he's five. Truck's up in the air. Major liability. Five-year-old around, right? So I'm like, Jackson, you can take the wheel off. Here's the caliper. Here's the rotor. Here's how we depress it. Here's how we do this, how we change this out. You know, showing all this. Well, in the midst of ch changing all that and showing him, Jackson's not like right there. And I look up, and he's down the side of my truck, I kid you not, with a permanent marker writing on the side of my truck. He's here. He doesn't even remember this. It happens. Because I'm out there scrubbing, trying to get permanent marker off me. Like, mm, mm, mm. Now, did I need my son to help me change the brakes? No. Why in the world would I have my son out there? Because my main goal in life is not changing brakes. It's changing my son. And that's what I'm trying to point out to you that Jesus is doing with Philip. Jesus' main goal wasn't just feeding a bunch of people. His main goal was changing Philip. And that's why I'm wanting you to think about why God tests you. See, I asked you, how do you feel about the fact that God is going to test you? Because none of us like it. It's like the story of Job. No one, no one even reads the story of Job until they're in an emergency. Because no one likes it. And yet, most biblical scholars believe that it was actually the very first book of the Bible ever written. It's the oldest one. No one likes the story of Job. Because here's Job. He's rocking along. The Bible says he's upright. He's faithful. He's righteous. God says of him, there's no one like him on the planet. And he's like, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And we're all like, God would never, would never do that. Whose idea was it to test Job? God's. And so in chapter two, the test comes. 
And Job's own wife says, curse God and die. Why are you holding fast to literally your integrity? And Job famously responds. I reference this all the time. Foolish woman. Who are we to accept the good from God and not the bad? And here's what's even crazier. Job's all alone in a cave, scraping his skin with boil because he has boils with broken pieces of pottery and three well-meaning Christians show up. Uh, Not Christians in the sense of New Testament Christians, but believers. And for almost 40 chapters, they tell Job he's wrong. And in the midst of the testing, Job is having to fend off well-meaning people that are trying to tell Job, actually, Job, this is all your fault. And this is where, this is a subpoint within the points that I'm trying to make here, all right? In fact, let me just give you the point. In the testing, beware of the tempting. In the testing, beware of the tempting, because here's how it works. God will test you. In the midst of chaos around you, God will look at you and ask you a question. And Philip responds like so many of us would. How does he respond? In a very natural way. Jesus, eight months of money wouldn't even make this problem go away. I mean, Philip responds very anxiously to the problem. And so Jesus is testing Philip because he wants Philip to know, hey, I know what I'm going to do. And I'll point this out in a minute. I just need you to believe that I know what I'm going to do and that I got you even in the midst of what you can't see that I got. And so what happens is in that testing, that's brought by God. What is not brought by God, and this is where you have to make the delineation, is the tempting. Again, the Bible has to interpret the Bible. That's a good hermeneutic. What I mean by that is how you study the Bible. So let read this story in light of James 1.13. God tempts no one. But also 1 Corinthians 10, God always provides a way out in the temptation. So here's Philip, just like... Job, Job's trying to endure the test. And here's what's crazy. Satan will work a lot of times through those who profess to know God. They'll come in and be like, what'd you do? Well, this is your fault. You must have sinned. You must have done something wrong because God doesn't punish people who do things right. Job's like, I ain't done nothing. And the reason why we know Job's friends were wrong because Job 42 God himself says to his friends, you're wrong. So you better know your Bible because if you're quoting something like Job 20 and it's one of his friends, like that's what the Bible says. Well, God says what they said was wrong about him. So know your Bible. And this is what happens a lot of times is in the testing, Satan will work his way into your heart and he will say things like this. God doesn't love you because if he loved you, he wouldn't be letting you go through this. See, God is looking at the crowds. He's forgotten you. And I'm just trying to point out within the story here, even in the midst of all the chaos, Jesus didn't forget Philip. In fact, he lovingly engages him to test him to see if Philip can remember, remember this is a year into his ministry, who Jesus is. Obviously, Philip fails the test. But here's why I'm telling you this. Because I want you to know how God works. 
that God is compassionate enough to engage with you, to test you, so that you can learn the areas in your life that you're not trusting God, that you may be anxious about. In fact, there's so much anxiety just in the system right now that one of the best words from God that we could leave with today is God knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do. The story goes on. Look at this. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, top dog, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You hear just the anxiety in Andrew's voice? What are they for so many? Verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now, this is the point I said I was going to refer to earlier, later. This is that. Look at Jesus's response, not only in the midst of Philip's anxiety, but Andrew's. Andrew takes it a step further. Philip's like, eight months worth of money won't do it. Andrew's like, we got five loaves and two fish, but what are they? For 20,000 people, 5,000 families, what is five loaves? You know what God say? Enough. I say this all the time. God loves to take the most improbable person and put them in the most impossible situations. He loves it. Why? Because then you're under no illusions about who's doing what. You're under no illusions about who the hero in the story is. That's why I say all the time. God loves He spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament, still doing it today. He loves using people who have no other reason to be standing up and doing what they're doing other than the grace of God. So here's Andrew. (laughs) I love his response. Just imagine Jesus. He's like, I've already turned water into wine. I healed a dude's son, and he wasn't even in my presence. And you think I'm scared about this? But here's Andrew, we got five loaves and two fish. That's all we got. And what's Jesus' response? Tell them to sit down. You know what I take from that? Two things. One, Jesus is like, ain't much else you can do but tell the people to sit down. Tell them to sit down. And the second one is I just, again, this is my interpretation. I just, it's like I can hear Jesus in saying this, I got this. You think I'm worried? Just sit down. So here's, here's how I think about that in my own life. You know, there's a lot of you in some form of leadership, schools, business, hospitals, other nonprofits. And last year was the worst time to be a leader. Because when you're trying to lead people through crisis after crisis, you got to stand up and exude confidence and tell them where we're going. But there was something, and leaders that went through it last year understand what I'm about to say. When you're trying to tell people, you're like, this is what we're doing. You're like, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I think this is what the Lord said I'm doing. Lord, is this what you want us to do? I told our staff one time, I'm about 51% sure about any decision I ever make. For real. 
It's only that 1%. Like 50-50, I don't know. But that 1% is Jesus. But this is what I feel like as a leader. My job is not to tell you what he's going to do. Because can I be honest with you? I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. I get people asking me all the time, we in the end times? Yep. How do you know that? Because we're in between the time when he died and rose again and when he's coming back. That's end times. <laughs> is this person antichrist? I don't know. Bible says there's going to be a lot of antichrists. They're probably one of them. I don't know. What about this country? What about this country? What about America? Oh, I don't know. Here's what I know. It's going to get worse and Jesus is going to come back. I know that. So my job is not to tell you what he's going to do. Here's what I feel like my job is to tell you. Would you please sit down? Sit down and watch what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to do. But here's what I know. He don't need me and he don't need you. He don't need a majority in the Congress. He don't need a president. He's going to do what he's going to do. But in the midst of that, he's going to test us to see if we believe that he's going to do what he's going to do. That's what I'm telling you. And this is where, again, this is what amazes me. God doesn't even need me to do that. You know, one of the great things about me taking the break for a couple weeks is it reminds me, God don't need me. Revolution Church is fine without me. You don't need me. He don't need you. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. He wants you. I didn't need my son to help me change the brakes. Again, I already told you, he was a liability. I got umbrella insurance now because of him. <laughs> and a lot of other reasons, but God doesn't need me. Here's what's crazy. I'm more of a liability to God's mission. But he wants me. And here's what's even crazier. John doesn't tell us, but Mark tells us the miracle actually happens in the hands of the disciples, not in the hands of Jesus. But let's read in John. Let's see what John says. It says, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down at about 5,000 in number. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Now, Mark 6 tells us that Jesus actually distributed it to the disciples, and the disciples distributed it to the people. John says he distributed it. Now, this is where critics of the Bible will say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. But good Bible people know, no, because you know how to answer it. I hope I've trained you well. Let's see. Was it the disciples that did it, or was it Jesus that did it? Yes. Yes. John's not wrong. Jesus did it. But how did Jesus do it? Through his disciples. And that's what's crazy. Jesus didn't need his disciples. In fact, two of them just showed how they were a liability because all they were bringing to the table was their anxiety. And Jesus says, just tell them to sit down and put your hands out. And think about it. Andrew's like, what's five loaves and two fish? Can you imagine this? Jesus is like, one for you, one for you, one for you. Next look. One for you, one for you. Two fish. Here's an eyeball. Here's a fin. Here's a... For real. I mean, think about it. Do you ever think like this? 
Imagine Philip and Andrew, two in the story. They were like, did you just give me an eyeball? What the heck am I supposed to do with this? Jesus, there's 20,000 people. Am I supposed to take this crumb and be like, you think you got impatient waiting in line in COVID? Think about this crowd of 20 people. There's no racetrack. There's no QT. There's a hillside. And Jesus. So here's what what I'm trying to get you to see. All you bring to Jesus is scraps. But that's all he wants. And what's crazy is here's the disciples with the eyeball and some loaves. Here you go. And the miracle happens in their hands. Imagine when they were like, here's a loaf. And then they looked down and it was replaced. Hold on. I know I just gave that. This is weird. Imagine that. What it must have felt like for Philip and Andrew. And Jesus says, I know what I'm going to do. And how much emotional energy was wasted by them? Because all they could see is what they couldn't do, and they couldn't see what he could do. See, God loves to take the most improbable people and put them in the most impossible situations. And he was like, hold my fish. Now, all you rednecks know what I just said. For real. And here's what's even crazier. Look at this. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, all the people, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled how many baskets? How many disciples were there? With fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Five loaves feeding 5,000 people, 5,000 families. Twelve disciples and 12 baskets left over. Do you think that is any coincidence? No. Why? Because God has a way of how he works. And God point, I think God pointedly was saying to them, if you just focus on giving yourself away to them, I got you. I got you. I mean, it would have been enough to go from five loaves to 12 basketfuls, right? But notice the 12 basketfuls didn't come until the five loaves had fed 5,000 families. Then it came. See, Even in the midst of the miracles, God is testing you to see if you trust him to get you as you give yourself away. That's what tithing is all about. That's what serving is all about. 
And this is the part that amazes me. This is why we ask you to serve. We invite you to serve because you don't know how incredible it is to know that you're a part of what God's doing in the world and you're watching him multiply stuff in your hands that you're like, there's no reason in the world he should be using my hands to see this happen. So when we invite you to serve on the team, that's what we're inviting you into. We're inviting you into the unbelievable privilege and honor it is to watch God work through someone like you. But here's what I know about Christians. I've been in ministry a long time. Most of us never see the miracles because we resist resist the methods of Jesus. Let me make this point and then I'll expound upon it. The method precedes the miracle. This is your second sub point. The method precedes the miracle. Don't miss this. He takes it. He gives thanks. He blesses it. He breaks it and he gives it. Mark tells that in more detail, but one of my favorite places in scripture is Luke chapter 24, not referencing this story, but after the resurrection, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus And there's two disciples, and they're distraught because Jesus just died, and they don't know that he'd been resurrected. So here's Jesus. He shows up. He's walking with them. They don't recognize him, and he explains to them about all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, was about him. And then they sit down, and Jesus, in in Luke 24, verse 30, I believe it is, Luke explicitly says the four steps. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it, and he gives it. And then the next verse says, and their eyes were immediately opened. What was it about the process that opened their eyes? Again, here's what I think. I think it reminded them, oh, this is how the Lord works. This must be the Lord. And here's what I want you to hear me say. This is how God is going to work in your life too. He's going to take you. What do I mean by that? He's going to take you out of the world save you, give you new life. He's going to bless you. Those of you who have been walking with Jesus, you remember that. But then here's the kicker, the third step. He's going to break you. He's going to break you. And then the fourth step, he's going to give you. And that is where the miracle happens. When your broken life is now given away to other broken people. But here's why most Christians never see that. And I'm I'm speaking of myself. It's because we resist the breaking. We love the taking, don't we? Take me out, Jesus. We love the blessing. Bless me, Jesus. But then when God starts breaking us, even well-meaning Christians are like, God hates you. What did you do wrong? Nothing. I did nothing wrong. This is the story of Job. Better yet, watch this. This is the story of Jesus. God took him out of heaven, put him in earth, blessed him for 33 years. I mean, his life was a blessing. But then on the cross, he broke him. Broke him. And then at his resurrection, he gave him. And now billions of people on the planet worship him. So here's what I'm saying to you. That miracle multiplication of billions of people believing in Jesus would have never happened had Jesus not been faithful in the breaking. 
What I'm saying to you and me is it will never happen in our lives either if we resist the breaking. You want to know why? Because we can't handle that without the breaking. It's weird. Even the book of Hebrews says Jesus had to learn through sacrifice and obedience. What does that mean? That Jesus was incomplete some way? No. He himself had to go through the human experience. So if you don't know that, then his method of testing you, you will be tempted to believe that he doesn't love you, that he's walked away from you. Let me say it to you like this, that he doesn't know what he's doing. That's the test. In the breaking, can you trust yourself in his hands? See, in the midst of Jesus feeding the crowd, that's what he's doing. He's bringing his disciples along to help them know this is how I work. What was it about the disciples that they were so confused about Jesus? It was the crucifixion. None of them saw it. Why? Because they thought there's no way the Messiah would die. But it was in the death that the miracle came. So now let's get back to the main point. All right. Verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done. When the people saw the sign. We're going to say it again, but I want you to sing it. It's going to be fun. All right? So when the people saw the sign. That was pretty good. Let's try it again. Just for old time's sake. All right? When the people saw the sign that he had done. You'll never forget this now. When they saw the sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus actually put his disciples in the boat and sent them back to the other side, told the people to go away, and then he went back up which that'll be a setup for next week's sermon. But here's the point I want us to see. Now we're back to the main point. The main point is the signs are written for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you have life in his name. So here's the point. Not only are the signs meant to point to him, but you better make sure you believe in the right Christ. And what I mean by that is this, the biblical one. There's a lot of people today that believe in an unbiblical Jesus. Because there's two main errors that we make. One is not in the text. One is in the text. I'll show you. But let me set these two up for you. I say this often, but my religion professor said on either side of the road is a ditch. So there's multiple ways to be wrong. One ditch is where people, I'm just going to call this because it's become a very popular term in the last century and even more so in this century, deconstruction. There's a lot of people today, if you pay attention at all to faith on social media, there's a lot of rather famous people that are deconstructing their faith. 
it's almost become a fad, a phenomenon, because it's happening. And, and I say this often to you, but please, for the love of all things good and holy, do not get your theology from TikTok. My gosh, I saw this video on TikTok. Mm. It's almost like when people ask me that question, I'm like, why don't you read a book by a dead guy 400 years ago? Let's get, our, let's get it there. Not some crackpot on TikTok that went to some seminary that doesn't even believe in the real Jesus. But what deconstruction, sorry, I was a little, let me get off my soapbox. What happens with deconstruction? Deconstruction means it's a form of critical theory that says, I'm going to break off the pieces and try to find the meaning. So here's what people have been saying. Well, that's what he said, but that's not what he means. And so what people are doing is they are deconstructing their faith and saying, I don't like this part of Jesus. I don't like this part of the Bible. That's Old Testament. Get rid of that stuff. I mean, that's Paul. Who is Paul? I'm going to go with the red letters. And I think Jesus would say, there ain't no red letters, homie. They're all mine. It's all the same. It's all him. It's all about him. And so they come up with a version of Jesus that is really more like a hippie. You know, loves kids and pets goats. But doesn't do anything that upsets anybody. I'm like, did you read Jesus? But here's what I'm saying this. If you fashion that kind of Jesus, guess what he's going to do? He's going to walk away. I ain't about that. And so there's a lot of people today who don't believe in the right Jesus. But, but here in the South where we are, a lot of times that's more easily recognizable because people are like, oh, he didn't raise again, virgin birth, Pfft. biblical idea of marriage. Pfft. No, let's take all that. And I just, it's live. That's easier for us to see, but there's another error. And this error is actually what happened in the text, not deconstruction where you're taking away, but I just call this reconstruction where you're adding to. There's a lot of people today that are adding to what Jesus is saying. And this is where I was saying earlier, they, they start reading the tea leaves and reading the signs. Well, this person is the Antichrist. This person is the Savior. This, how do you know? It's amazing. Every time someone says the world, remember when the world was going to end in 2012 because the Mayans? I don't think they were right. But it's going on right now. And, and this is, and we just came through a raucous political season. We're going right back into it every two years. Yeah, yes. And people are like, what about this? What about that? What about God's will? This is what he wanted. And there was a lot of pastors. They're like, it was God's will for this and God's will for this. And it didn't happen. I'm like, what was that God's will? And this is where we got to be careful, church. That's why I'm saying it to you. Because I care more about your salvation than I do your political affiliation. We got to be real careful not to add to what the Bible says about what God is doing. This is why I told you earlier, I don't know what he's doing. What I do know is whatever happened was his will or it wouldn't have happened. So there's a lot of Christians. We're all freaking out. And listen, I'm not saying it's wrong to rebut what is not true in culture. What I'm saying is there's a lot of Christians that are walking around like Philip and Andrew. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? 
If we don't have a Supreme Courts, if we don't have the, what are we going to do? And I think there's a lot of us that need to sit down because God knows what he's going to do. And I'm not, please hear me. I'm not being tongue in cheek. I'm not being funny. I care about you and I want you to know what I do think God is doing is a collective testing. I think he's testing the church. It's like people who weren't coming to church before COVID who were railing about the fact they couldn't go to church during COVID. We weren't coming before. And where are you since? There's a collective testing going on. Do you really believe this? Because it will cost you to believe this. They killed Jesus over it. They will kill us over it. And so there's a collective testing going on. So here's what I do think is happening. We will see a mass amount of people where the gospel is multiplied into them because finally we took it serious. And people will see, wow, life without God is this crazy mess. But yet, if the church is freaking out, where will they go? So this is where we got to learn to sit down, trust God. I don't know what he's doing. But what I do know is I can trust him. I can trust my life in his hands. And I will see the glory of the Lord multiplied into people's lives because that's what he does. So make sure you believe in the right Jesus. Not in one who takes away truths that are clearly established, but also not one that adds power tactics to his kingdom. He is not a king of our own making. And listen to me, there's a lot of well-meaning people who are talking in such political, forceful, powerful terms. I'm like, that ain't Jesus. It's not how he works. He walked away from them to crown him as king. I ain't in that. He is in the testing and the suffering and the sacrifice of his people. Because that is what shows that we trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, I know we had a time today. I know that uh, I'm a little bit over, but God, I just so desperately want people to know the real Jesus. The Jesus who is not afraid of what's going on right now. The Jesus whose gospel toppled the most powerful government on the planet in the Roman Empire. But he did it through death and sacrifice, through the taking, the blessing, the breaking, and the giving. God, help us to be that kind of people that trusts you, that we just sit down and we know that you know what you're going to do. Help us to believe in you. And for those, God, who don't believe in you now, who don't trust you, who don't know who you are, you are the God 
who entered into our suffering, who entered into our shame, who took upon yourself all the fear and anxiousness and sin. And you took it to the cross and he rose again, proving that you have power over it. And so God, I pray right now for anybody who has not trusted you, that you would open their eyes to see the truth about who you are and they would believe. No one looking around or talking here as we close, but if you want to trust Jesus, not just because of the sign, but because of who he is, then you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son in my place for my sin. I trust in Jesus alone to save me. Please forgive me. Thank you so much for loving me. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking, both locations online. If you're one of those that just prayed that with me, especially if you're in person, one of our locations, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? If you just trusted Jesus, just lift up your hand. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. If you're online or in person, just a moment, you have an opportunity to give us your information so we can follow up with you. But then those of us who've trusted Jesus and, and you are really concerned about what's going on in our world, I want you to hear me. It's okay to be concerned. It should break our hearts. We should pray like crazy for God to move but we should not adopt tactics that are not of Jesus. And we should not add to Jesus a revelation about what we think his will is. You can trust him because he knows what he's going to do. Father, thank you for loving us. Help us to be the type of people that are just so amazed about the fact that you want to use someone like us and let you take us through the process of taking blessing, breaking and giving so that we can see the miracle of multiplication happen where it's not just bread, but it's you and people working. God, I believe as the world gets darker, your light shines brighter and more people will come to know you. If the church can take a posture of sitting down and trusting you and serving Thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.